out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the guitarist and songwriter and artist. It is the one and only Steve Appleton, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. Anyway, for those who do know or don't know, if you don't, if you do know, don't worry about it. If you don't, um, he was in various Norwich bands, one being Basti from the 80s and also another one called Globo, um, who went on to record various albums, which you'll find out more about during this interview. So I'm not going to give you any spoilers. No spoilers here. So, um, look, after several minutes of um, chin chat, it is showbiz, that's what we do. That gets edited out because it's kind of boring and tedious. We got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. What was that moment? Steve, tell us about your early formative years and the, the moment that triggered everything. Here goes. Take it away. Definitely. So, end of the pier, seeing uh, Bert Whedon. It was the weirdest thing. Um, so Bert Whedon, if people don't know, is the guy that wrote Play Guitar in a Day, all those mm-hmm. kind of learn how to play guitar uh, books, of which later I actually did have one. But I'm six years old. Uh, my father, for some reason, took us to see Bert Whedon. Uh, and he did this, uh, he played some songs, whatever, and that was a bit boring, I suppose. But then he did this amazing thing where he said, look, I can play the guitar really fast. And I bet you can't count how many notes I play in a minute. And he did, you know, it was a real technical, I can see now it's a real technical exercise just to fill time. But as a six-year-old, it was astonishing, firstly, to see, and I mean this in a good way, a slightly elderly gentleman at that point, um, kind of really getting into playing the guitar. He was really excited by it. And then to see the audience really excited by it. Suddenly it was like, oh, yeah, music. That could be a thing that I could become involved in. Yeah. So did you you grow up in the the sort of Norfolk, basically? Oh, absolutely. I uh, was born in Kings Lynn. Uh, For a while I moved to Great Yarmouth. And then I moved to Norwich. I've moved all over Norfolk. You have, have you? you have the, the sort of, yeah, you went, you went to the high spots of, of the, the... Highs high, and the lows. The highs and the lows. So, yes, as a six-year-old then, you saw Bert Whedon. So were you sort of also watching things like Top of the Pops and listen to the Top 20 on a Sunday afternoon, evening? So the Bert Whedon thing, for me, looking back on it, gave me permission to see the guitar as a cool thing. Mm. I mean, this in a good way, if my dad took me to see it, and it was the only thing he ever took me to see at a theatre, it meant that the guitar was, ooh, doable. Um, Interestingly, then, one of my cousins um, uh, learned to play the guitar, and he looked like a cross, it was really weird, he looked like a cross between um, uh, Freddie Mercury and Brian May. He had this really curly hair, so both Queen men Um, and he really liked Queen. So, so Bert Whedon gave me permission to think that playing the guitar was great because the audience loved you for it. My cousin gave me permission to think, actually, normal people can learn to play the guitar. That was shocking. Mm, and have long hair. Uh, well, I, I couldn't manage it in those days. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. uh, then uh, uh, my mum brought me my first ever single. 
Ooh. So the first ever record I owned uh, was by Slade. It was Goodbye to Jane. So quite wow. rocking, quite, yeah, again, very weird for my mum to decide to do that. But I had the seven-inch single of Slade's Goodbye to Jane. Yeah, I bet you even played the B-side. So were your parents at all, you know, interested in music? Was your dad, when he was a young teen, probably... Oh, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. Uh, dad, and I mean this in a good way, um, was a bricklayer. Mm -hmm. Very kind of working class, very uh, manly. Um, yeah, he, he did nothing but work, work, so work. did he do national service? No, he was a little bit too young for that. Right. Uh, but from my perspective, and this is really cruel, and, and, and children are like that, my dad had no interests apart from chain smoking and right. work. I mean, he provided for his family brilliantly, but he chain smoked and he worked, and he took me to see Bert Whedon. Right. Did he, was he into sport at all, or was it that a no-no as well? No, I don't think he was. Um, yeah, he, it, it, my, my family were, so I grew up on a farm, um, in just outside Kingsley, until the All Saints. Yeah. Uh, so I've, I was surrounded by strawberries all the time. Cows? Uh, we, no, just strawberries. Just strawberries. <laughs> I love strawberries so much. <laughs> uh, but so, yeah, the idea that suddenly uh, my mum had bought me a record, what? And, and she let me put it on the record player. We had one of those kind of big kind of cabinets. Oh, we loved them, didn't we? Record player in it. And if you put it in and the arm would go over, and I, I don't know how old I was when that came out. It could have been more than maybe eight. We can actually check the dates, I suppose. Well, yes, absolutely. So, the, um, so, so your parent, I mean, so your dad obviously not, but your, did you have any brothers or sisters at this stage? Uh, yes, I had an elder brother, um, and he was, uh, <laughs> he was not interested in anything that wasn't, he was very sporty. Um, he was a, a kind of championship hurdler for a while. Um, yeah, again, very manly. Blimey. So the, by that, I mean, he was kind of, uh, he liked drinking. He liked going out and kind of being boisterous. <laughs> I liked staying in, listening to records, reading books. That's right. huge. Um, so well, it's quite interesting because because on my sort of way, you know, my, my childhood, I suppose when my parents got married, you know, again, they were sort of very working class from the countryside and they were the generation that never sort of borrowed money. So they just sold everything. So we didn't have a record player in the house until the early 70s, where suddenly, you know, dad had sold his records and the record player got married, you know, got a little house together. And then, you know, things started to appear in our lives during the late 60s and early 70s obviously I don't remember much about the early 60s but I don't from, from the stories we didn't have much which is fine but then you know they got the record player and they bought a couple of terrible records which were really bad um yeah and but my brother who was older seven years older than me was a big influence and he bought I remember a couple of the albums he bought which was probably about 73 was um Sergeant Pepper the Beatles <laughs> just in case you didn't know and also um yes elton john's goodbye yellow brick road and and you know it was like wow that's unusual and at that time you know no one cared about the beatles did they i mean they were just passe and we'd seen a few of the films but you know there was no cultural context of this album so i just played it constantly going hmm, interesting this is very interesting lyrics you know and then i think we also got another one which is hugely influential which was the carpenters which i love 
to this day. So, um, and I've always said, if you like the Carpenters, you're definitely going to love Joy Division and the Smiths mm. for various reasons. So, um, yeah, so that was that was kind of our little world. So it was, but it was like suddenly seeing things like the glam world on top of the pops and then Alice Cooper's schools out, which were quite influential. Well, certainly for me then, um, once we got past that kind of very child period, um, my so listening to Slade was my very child period. Yes. Uh, my and, elder brother, and Action Man, did you have an Action Man? Oh, I had tons of Action Man guns. Well, we lived on a farm, so we had real guns as well. Yeah, shotguns, air pistols. I wasn't that keen, to be honest. Yes, we all had a gun. No, my brother. Um, suddenly got into a kind of heavy metal. So I was listening to loads of Black Sabbath. So I think moving from Slade to kind of heavy metal to kind of thin Lizzy. So he'd be listening to that stuff. What about Deep Purple? Did they appear? Oh, Deep Purple, definitely. Yeah, Excellent. yeah, yeah. Yeah, and my so brother had Deep, Deep Purple and Black Sabbath were two albums that appeared as well. They were in my head. But for me, I was listening to Joni Mitchell. So again, Martin, my brother, was very kind of manly and macho. And I was very kind of, well, if he's doing that, then I'll listen to singer-songwriters. I'll listen to emotional stuff. Mm. Um, so our house actually had a really interesting kind of reverberation, all these kind of heavy metal riffs, which really came to the fore later on when I was in kind of heavy rock bands. Yes. Um, and this kind of singer-songwriter, Joni Mitchell, who I absolutely still love to this day. Amazing work. Um, yeah, it's interesting kind of what you pick up on. Yes. Well, my... From Joni Mitchell, I went straight to Kate Bush because I heard her on the bus um, yes. going to the secondary school. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that was the first, that was the first album that I bought. Well, the Kick Inside. Uh, yes, yeah. Nice, nice. And then I've got every album that she's ever released. I think she's amazing. Yes, Even the stuff I don't like, I love. The fact that she's done it and she's got this kind of voice and she's got this persona. Yeah, uh, no, yeah. I, I sort of think The Sensual World is one of the side twos, just stunning, really. But interesting, going, just going back to my brother, he went into the prog rock world of Yes, Genesis, Wishbone Ash, Barkley, James Harvest, and the solo work of Rick Wakeman. And that yeah. was a huge influence on my life for about three years, which is quite odd, really. Um, uh, so I went to um, the grammar school in Kings Lynn. Um, there was a whole bunch of people there who were incredibly influential on me. Um, so as a kind of 13, 14 year old, <gasps> yeah, I was introduced to Yes and Genesis. And so that was huge. Yes. And Steve Howe, the guitarist from Yes, was enormous for me. Yes, we loved going for the one. Don't kill the whale. I mean, they were just absolutely. Classic. Why would you kill them? <laughs> I know. Friendly for the whales. Yes, absolutely. It's up there with the protest song of the uh, the Osmonds and Crazy Horses, really, isn't it? Really, I didn't. Oh, I didn't. Oh, sort of, oh, sorry, I have to. My so on the farm there was me, my elder brother, and my cousin Carol. She lived in the house next door um, with her mum, so we were incredibly tight knit. Uh, family and she adored the Osmonds. So I was doing Joni Mitchell, my brother was doing kind of Thin Lizzy and Black Sabbath, and Carol was doing the Bay City Rollers and the Osmonds. Um, Classic. What about the, oh the Bay City Rollers? Oh, fantastic. We wouldn't have punk if it wasn't for the Bay City Rollers, really. Let's face it, they were yeah, just everything. Permission to wear weird trousers. I think they gave us. We didn't uh, have the light, but they gave us permission. 
And they did that chant, hey ho, let's go. And then you see the Romans did it. You know, they just yes. copied them. Yeah, yeah. Um, good days. Good days. <laughs> good days. Great songs. But yeah, so when did so you'd picked up a guitar by then and were you did it come quite naturally, sort of learning? Not at all. So my story was seeing Bert Whedon at six made it exciting. Um I got a acoustic guitar, my nan. Uh, ran one of those catalogues. Uh, no, it's great universal. Yes, absolutely. Um, so, so you could buy stuff from that. So I bought, as like a, I I must have been seven, uh, um, an acoustic Spanish nylon string guitar. Oh, and it really hurt. I don't know if you've ever played a rubbish acoustic yeah, nylon. They really hurt. So I put it in the cupboard and forgot all about it. Uh, but then I saw my cousin Dave, the one who looks like Brian May and blah, 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 uh, Freddie Mercury, he had an electric guitar, Stratocaster. And I thought, ooh, that's interesting. And then I forgot all about it. Then I went to, so that was when I was kind of 13, 14. But then my friend at the time, Daniel, uh, so we're 17 at this point. I really haven't done much at all. No. 17. Doing but you would have done your GCSEs or uh, no O levels, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, no, I've done those. We're now thinking about uh, A levels. Um, I did art and archaeology. That's all. Um, uh, my friend Daniel Stabler's father was a huge blues fan. Uh, he had this in a room full of blues records. Um, I wasn't that interested, but Daniel said we should play guitar. We should learn to do it. I think he wanted to impress his dad. Right. So because it was, and this will come across a lot, actually, in my certainly early career, because somebody suggested it, I said, yeah, right. Because being really cruel, it was easier to sit around and to play the guitar than to think of things to talk about. Nice. Yes, no. Yeah. So, so it, was, it was kind of a, just an easy thing to do. So suddenly I kind of knew what the guitar was, and then suddenly I had a guitar and a friend who was keen to learn. And he had one of the Burt Whedon books. So we literally in a day learned some chords. Oh my God, that's uh, fantastic. Then, yeah, then that all stopped because I went to art college in Great Yarmouth. Oh, classic. Did you so meet? I'm like, now I'm like 18, not guitar, but I can kind of play a few chords. Uh, and this is the real kicker. Um, I started at Great Yarmouth. I lived in a bed and breakfast for two years with a guy called Paul Thompson, um, who's become my kind of musical and business partner ever since. So the last kind of 30, 40 years I've worked with this guy. He was in a punk, he was a punk rock band. And so he was a musician he, he right. and stuff. I was a, a kind of little guy that was kind of in the same room as him. He suddenly was recording a demo with his punk rock band and he said, well, you can play guitar a bit, can't you? And I was too embarrassed to say, well, not really. I'm sorry, Paul. So I said, yeah, yeah, I'll give it a go. <laughs> and literally that was it. Suddenly I was kind of in, in a band, in a recording studio, kind of, oh God, and you can do it. It's really weird. You don't have to be Steve Howe. You don't have to play in Yes to actually play guitar. You just have to make some noise with it. Nice. That's amazing. That, that so, was was, so was this a band that had a name? Uh, yes. Uh, so that band was called Eva Valve. They came from Wyndham College and they were a kind of very punk band. When I saw them, 
um, in Yarmouth, they'd become very, um, well, he had a black hand painted on his face. So they'd become very interested in the kind of look and he had this kind of curly quiff, very, I was stunned by this. Was this like the flock of seagulls, but more gothic? Yes, yeah, there was a real kind of dressy-uppy element to it. They loved uh, that in the 80s, didn't they? Was it oh, slightly, was it, so was it, this being the early 80s, I mean, we'd sort of, I mean, obviously 79 Thatcher gets in, which, you know, changes the political landscape a bit. And then yeah. there was kind of the, the rise of sort of the new romantic period, wasn't there, at that period, at that time. And also there was the sort of the goth world of the Batcave and an alien sex scene and people like that. So was was that kind of scene started to sort of slip into the world that is the art school days of Yarmouth? Yes, bearing in mind we're in Great Yarmouth. So we were very happy to kind of dress up and put face paint on, or Paul Walsh, shall I say, and I was there to support him. Um, but the audience, I think, were expecting Black Sabbath. So, yeah, there was an interesting tension. Nobody was nasty, but <laughs> they, they were. I think they were thinking, well, art students. And then they would wander off, if, yes. if that makes sense. Uh, but that really didn't matter. The point is, um, we were in a band called Eva Valve. Uh, this is where it gets really interesting. We did some quite good recordings. Uh, we started to tour a bit, and then two things happened. Firstly, I don't know if you know the waterfront in Norwich. Yes. Um, so the waterfront was started by just a bunch of kids um, who... Uh, started a thing called the Venue Campaign. It was a campaign to get a venue in Norwich where rock could happen. Yes. Um, so uh, we became part of the Venue Campaign and Eva Valve was kind of touring around little schools, doing performances and saying to the kids, you need a rock venue. My God, are you like one of those theatre companies that used to, well, theatre companies, theatre people that would come to schools and do sort of yes. weird little things? Yes, like we'd, you... we'd, do, we'd do two or three songs and we, one of them, I remember we... Um, one of the highlights of that for me, uh, it was uh, Christmas time, and they asked us to do a cover of Slade's um, Come On, Feel the Noise, and then um, Here It Is Merry Christmas. So we're, we're doing like an assembly, kind of playing these Slade songs. It's gone right back to when I'm seven again. My God, this is like Legs Akimbo, isn't it? On, on, on the... yeah, yeah, you kind of go around and you do stuff. Uh, so, so this was it. Firstly, um, from the waterfront's point of view, uh, we became quite involved in that. And I would say I'm the first person to ever play at the waterfront. There you go. Just throw that out there. Yeah, absolutely. The, the also the first uh, local um, act to headline at the waterfront. That was quite exciting. Well, yeah, so, yeah, those days are the, the 80s. But no, here's the, here's the real kicker, though. So we're either Valve, a kind of quirky pop band at that point. Also part of the venue campaign was a band called the Herman Hood, who were, from my perspective, very outré. Um, they were kind of a bit heavy. They were kind of a bit jazz. Um, we were a trio. They were a trio. We all needed somewhere to live, so we moved into the same bungalow. A bungalow? God, that's so perfect. Oh, it was perfect. It was a bungalow with a huge garage um, separate from the building that we turned into a rehearsal room. And then suddenly we said, well, if we're two three-piece bands, why don't we just do a gig as a seven-piece band, just join them together, write some songs. Uh, and that's where Basti came from. Right, God. Yeah, the dynamic on seven people in the band, what could go wrong? Oh, it, was, and it was amazing, all living in the one tiny bungalow. 
Um, so it was that was 1987. So oh, wow. So the 80s really did. So you you were at college between the years of 16 to 18. Uh, no, 17 to 19. I'm a, I was a little bit younger in the year. Right. Uh, so yeah, I was 17 to 19. By the time I was 19, I'd moved to Norwich and we were in these bands. Within six months, we'd become this big rock band. So suddenly I wasn't playing um, kind of English guitar anymore. We were very influenced by the industrial rock scene in America. Uh, that, that was how I remember it anyway. So yes. it was very loud, very angry, um, very, um, I, I think very annoyed with the music scene at the time. Uh, we wanted it to be a little bit more kind of vigorous, I think. We were young men, we wanted bigger. You wanted bigger. But um, yeah, but then, that, you know, the, the 80s was kind of fascinating because I didn't realise there were kind of so many little sub scenes oh, yeah. and stuff like that once you start picking it through but mm. you, you know you had roughly you had the mainstream charts with that trevor horn production then yes. on the other side we had you know the indie world of the smiths who were between mm. the years of 83 to 87 which was kind yeah. of quite major because there was seen to be a real scene at that point with people like the june brides and go-betweens and the triffids and then the whole cassette with bogshed and big flame and uh all those other bands and you know obviously in america there was the sort of the rise of people like Bad Brains and then Husker Do and Butthole Surface and Big Black. So where were you kind of getting your influences from? Because it obviously wasn't from sort of cute indie pop kids. Oh, God, no. Like I say, very much uh, we were kind of angry West Coast of America. Um, so just at that point, uh, grunge was kind of starting to happen. Um, so from uh, my perspective, we, weren't, we were never a grunge band. But suddenly they were interesting guitar sounds and yeah, it was kind of sweet. Um, also, brilliantly for me, um, at that point, Basti was quite big. Um, so we were kind of, we toured everywhere in England. We literally played everywhere. Um, just at that point, we had the same um, promotion company as Nirvana. Um, and they were touring. God, who was that? Was that Bad Moon? Bad Moon. Yeah, I keep oh, Anton. Ball, but that's from the Doctor Who series, isn't it? So yeah, we stayed in Anton's house with Nirvana. Um, so we you know, you kind of chatting, you're kind of soaking these influences. Um, it was brilliant. The I other all, I think he also did the Orbs first 12 inch, didn't he? I think he did, yes. I think it was he. Yeah, I mean, there, there was a kind of little London scene that we poked, I don't think we were ever a part of it, but we could stay in houses if we needed to, if that makes sense. And we were kind yes. of all tour. Um, the, the other thing that was really big for us, so being slightly part of that, what I think of as that very, at the time, modern scene, uh, we also bought a sampler. So Paul, the guy that I moved into the uh, art school uh, bed and breakfast with, um, he bought a sampler. So suddenly okay. we went from being a kind of rock band to being a rock band that was interested in kind of electronics. Yeah. Um, so Basti was brilliant, totally enjoyed it. Um, we did some amazing stuff. We released a couple of albums, loads of singles, toured everywhere. Uh, then we lost a couple of members. So moving towards the late 80s, 88, 89. Um, Oh, we played with some amazing people as well. 
Yes. Well, it's good. it was an interesting period because kind of after 87, it did, did feel like, you know, having interviewed a lot of those bands, most bands have a five-year narrative, as, you, yeah, yeah, as, yeah. We'll, as we'll realise later. Um, but, you know, they went, oh, actually, no one cares. And we've also, you know, we don't like each other. And we've fallen out. And we've got no money. So there's no point staying together, like a bad marriage. So then 87 comes along and then 88. And there's definitely the next wave of the 16 to 18-year-olds want their sound and their bands. And no longer interested in those boring bands in the early 80s. And ecstasy hit, so you get that kind of, the, the next bit of kind of the rave scene with Primal I am totally there. So following that, we had like three, four, five years of Basti, which was amazing. We did some really, looking back, brilliant work. We had the bad marriage, we fell apart. Um, four members of Basti, so three of the original Eva Valve and one of the other band, uh, decided to become, because we had this kind of sampling technology and we'd started to get electronic computery stuff. Yeah, suddenly we were part of the rave scene. We became a band called Globo. Globo, blimey yeah. O'Reilly. So um, were you, I mean, when you were talking about the North London scene, there was pe- people like, you know, my bloody Valentine, Silverfish, the Faith Healers, and then Carter, the Unstoppable Sex uh, Machine. So they were, they were quite of a grungy, they were quite a grungy, squatty old bunch, weren't they? You weren't a squatty, grungy old bunch, were you? Oh, you no, I'm, I'm whispering. That was awful. I hated all that stuff. Did you? <laughs> <laughs> nice, clean house. That was why I was really pleased that we could kind of dip our toes into it. And go back to the managers as part of the Unstoppable Sex Machine. Um, so we never actually worked with them, but we kind of met up with them loads. Um, no, I was... One of the good things about living in a little provincial town, Norwich... It could be nice and clean, but you can pretend you're part of the London scene. Yes, you can pretend you're CBGB's Max's Cancer City. Exactly. Uh, But so then in my head, and this is just in my head, maybe it's different for other members of the band, uh, but then we just, bang, pretended we were part of the rave scene. Um, Oh, no, actually, no, sorry, going back slightly, um, we also, as Bastie, did loads of recording in uh, Salford. Um, in um, Peter Hook's studio. So we were also part of the, kind of the Manchester scene, kind of. Yes. Um, he took us to his mum's Indian restaurant for meals when we were up there. Lovely. That's nice. Did you, did you get frustrated, though? Because obviously you, were, you recorded a couple of albums and a lot of material, but it didn't quite enter that kind of the next stage, did it? Yeah, no, we, we got some lovely press. We worked with some lovely people. We made a little bit of money, but essentially nothing happened. Uh, the best that happened, and this for me was enormous, given I've mentioned my love of Joni Mitchell. Um, there was a period where Geffen sent over their um, head PR person to kind of see a show that we, we did with the idea that, you know, maybe we could sign with them. Uh, and she came and she saw us and she said, oh, no, thank you. And that was the closest we ever came to. And I'm, in retrospect, it was such a blessing that we didn't kind of do that because we'd have been stuck at that period, I think. Yes. Were you influenced by people like Age of Chance, by any chance? Were they, were they on your radar? Not really. No, no, I think by that point we'd kind of given up or I had given up on other people and I was trying to force Basti to become a thing and when it like my thing and when it wouldn't then we moved into the electronic dancing which again given that I really didn't like any of that I don't like dancing I'm not very good at it 
Um, I certainly didn't take any drugs. I'm not good at that. Um, but as a kind of technical form, as an exercise to use that technology to make music, um, yeah, it was more the technology that was an influence for me by this point. Yes. And with, um, with Basti, did you have a moment that you all sat down and said, the quote, Jim Morrison, this is the end, or did you just stop going to rehearsals? Oh, um, so <coughs> we did, you know, those Sound City events? Oh my uh, God, yes, I'd forgot about them as well. Yeah, no, we, we, that's where we um, uh, did a huge headline show at the waterfront. They brought champagne in, it was lovely. Live on Radio One, did the big set. Um, it was really quite nice. Literally the morning after, um, three members of the band said, ah, oh, we've had enough of this. Did you, did, you, did you know it was coming? Did you have that feeling that the, the marriage was about to crumble? Yeah, yeah, I wasn't surprised, but it felt kind of, at the time it felt a bit, a bit weird. Now it was such the right decision. I, again, I would have carried on, I think. Uh, but then, dumb, Basti finished, we had this huge new life as kind of dance artists. Yeah. Uh, signed to Hydrogen Jukebox, put out a whole bunch of albums. Again, worked with some amazing people. Um, so is it the case that you've managed to archive all your Basti kind of work? Yes. Uh, well, I'm uh, literally at the moment I'm going through this process um, because, like you say, lots of people are interested in... Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like their childhood. Uh, brilliantly for me, I've always been pretty interested in technology, as I say. Um, so uh, I like to video things, I like to record things, I'm very good at archiving things. Um, so I, I went in my loft a couple of weeks ago and suddenly I've, oh, I could reach over, pull out the camera and all the DV tapes. And uh, Oh my God, that must be so exciting. Oh, well, so um, I've literally today posted on my blog um, video of, of an entire show we did in Basti when we were talk we did a big tour of Poland. Um, so there's an entire 50 minute show uh, uh, that we played in the University of Warsaw. Wow. Uh, I haven't seen it for like 30 years. Wow, suddenly I've got this cassette. Wow, suddenly I can get it on this old computer behind me. That means I can put it on YouTube and share it. Absolutely. No, I mean, we, we love it. Because a lot of people often say, you know, about any regrets, mostly it's just, oh, I wish I'd taken some more pictures. I wish I'd, yeah, basically taking more pictures. That was the main one. And enjoy it more. That was often people's mood. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Their, their sort of thing. So was Basti, had Basti just become a very angsty thing? Because it was quite a big collective of people. And then you had lots of guest artists, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Basti was, it became, I think... And again, this is my perspective. Um, we were young and we were angry and we were fighting against a whole bunch of stuff. And then suddenly we weren't quite so young. And maybe, you know, there, there, there's an energy, as we know, to anger. There's an energy to youth. Uh, but suddenly as you're starting to, oh, I'm in my kind of late 20s now. Maybe I'm not so angry. Yeah. I'm actually living in the house that I'm living now. And it's in lovely kind of the Golden Triangle in Norwich. What have I got to be angry about? It's the great, the great G&T, the music yeah, no, belt. One it's, starts to become a little bit more happy. You and for me, habitat, what, don't you? Yeah, well, that's what Globo was, actually. What for habitat? Me, <laughs> the whole dance scene for, for, I guess, for the 
I'm, I'm saying this in air quotes, the dance scene for the kids that were involved in it was, was maybe kind of a bit angsty and outre and dangerous. For me, it was just happy and lovely. Um, yes, well, we heard, you know, the all the ever pulsating thing, which went on for ages, didn't it? John Peel, yeah, I remember yeah. John Peel playing it and being very sort of amazed by it. And there was also that Chicago house scene and on F, was it FFRR records and yeah, yeah. suddenly all this kind of other exciting kind of i suppose acid house had happened it? It was, yeah yeah but there was there was all that going on so the 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 rave scene was absolutely huge at that stage wasn't it yeah and we did some really uh quite amazing shows uh we'd take over buildings we'd kind of do dj sets and kind of wander in and play globo sets it was very kind of lovely and amorphous uh and i just remembering having a genuinely excuse me, having a great time doing those shows. And we did projections and lovely pictures and, oh, it was so lovely. So when you came to your first album, which was in, was it 95, um, Pro War, yes, by, yes. By, by then the music scene had changed again because there was, there was that stage where everybody, it was all about Seattle and the grunge scene and it was all very kind of, oh, yeah, get us kind of, sort of hairy people talking, you know, with Jack Daniels in their hand and talking about their, problems with their stepfather and angst about small town America and then we got bored of that and you know no one cared about the Nirvana's third album really did they and uh, let's get just, over it man get yeah. over it yeah just move on and um, then Britpop comes so where were you feeling you know at that stage because we had Sensor everyone loved Sensor and everyone had loved the levelers I bit strange about levels but um yes and then people like Chumbawamba started sort of getting into that dance fusion so were you kind of looking around thinking not trying to sort of make something commercial, but thinking, yeah, we, we shouldn't be Simon and Garfunkel. The, the kids want something a bit more dynamic here. Well, no, it's, I think we then moved to an interesting period. So we had been this very happy kind of dance band that were putting on these events and that was all great. Um, and then suddenly, again, we got that little bit older. Yeah house was just that's not so happy I can stay in the house and do stuff um so suddenly it became a slightly different focus and you uh, were thinking about okay if we make this piece of music uh we could place it with this tv series or so it was all about kind of syncing your material right which doesn't sound as kind of I don't know it's not as romantic no kind it's of, not cutting edge is it no not at all um, so we did some um, title sequences and theme tunes for some BBC comedy shows. We did. So we were working at that point. You know, you know, suddenly it went from not being in a band, but to being working musicians. And there's a real difference there. Um, so we were producing loads of material. Um, and mostly that material was, uh, I'm, I'm kind of waving my arm dismissively it was used on kind of websites. Right, God. And then it disappeared as soon as websites disappeared. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't songs and it wasn't important, but but there was definitely money involved in it. Had you uh, been slightly influenced by Zig Zig Sputnik by any chance? Had you sort of enjoyed their kind of brash kind of outrageousness? Um, I know, yes, I know members of Globo was, and I know that I wasn't impressed by that. Um, but definitely there was a commercialization to that, a kind of capitalism. Yes. That, that kind of, I think we did become interested in either commenting on 
Um, so some of our songs were you know, quite yeah, kind of political and yeah, kind of questioning the value of lots of things, including our own chosen career path. Because, um, yeah, if you're trying to make money, yeah, maybe you make this kind of music. And suddenly, yeah, it went a bit weird at that point. Um, it certainly, for me, wasn't as much fun, um, but we did produce maybe more useful material if you know if we sold a tractor that was useful <laughs> we, we yeah i'm not selling that period too well uh, <laughs> we, we did uh, theme tunes for the Norwich city football club to sell more shirts right god you had your, yeah. yeah i mean so you were looking at music more of like uh, we're not content we love content you want content yeah. it, it, it was we really did move into the kind of late 90s uh, just, just making content that could be used in the marketplace. Right, um, blimey. So you, because when you were sort of obviously Basti, that was the Thatcher years, and then most of Globo was kind of the John Major years, coming into Tony Blair's new label, yeah. really, wasn't it? So you it, sort of caught the wave of, oh, to hell with politics, we're just going to make loads of money. Yeah, kind of. Um, I would, also going back, sorry, to the Thatcher years, there were many bad things about it. Um, but one brilliant thing, do you remember there was a, a, a program called the Manpower Services Commission? Um, essentially, there was an advert that came out. Um, it, it was in the local post office. I went in to get my uh, dole check. Yes. Unemployed musician. There's a big post that said, are you an unemployed musician? If so, do you want to come on this Manpower Services Commission funded project? Uh, we'll give you, I think it was like 50 quid a week, which was slightly more than the dole at that point. Yeah. Um, and you sign up for it, and, and if you're taken on, oh, my God, you get a whole year. Well, I got nearly two years training um, being a community musician. Um, I don't well, know if you have yes, any opinion on that. All those kind of schemes, because I, I know a lot of bands from the the eighties during the early eighties. You, you know, there was unemployment, but there's also job seekers loans and enterprise loan yeah, yeah, schemes. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of people just had to sort of magically get a thousand pounds in their bank account, which was always quite amusing. And yeah, then no, go, you know, there you go, have a one year and put anything you want. Just don't worry. Well, here's anything. the thing. Firstly, uh, and I'm not boasting. I've always been lucky and quite focused in. If there's money available, then I will get it. So if there was a bunch of money to pay for a whole year for you to sit in a room with a bunch of other musicians and become a community musician, then I'm going to damn do it. Yes, um, absolutely. But, but now here's the thing. This is so important. Um, Margaret Thatcher's government paid for me to do this amazing training. Um, the, the thing that I signed up to uh, was essentially run by a guy called John Stevens. Um, he's a free, or he was, he's passed on now, a free jazz drummer. He started the London um, uh, improvised music ensemble. Um, so weirdly, at the same time I was in Bastion and a kind of angry rock, grungy kind of kid, yes. I was working with all these amazing free jazz players. I actually played with Derek Bailey, who's an insanely good improvising guitar, or was an insanely good improvising guitarist. So at the same time, I was doing kind of all these rock riffs. Oh, I was getting this amazing training in um, 
well, free jazz. Free jazz. My God, we love free jazz. Uh, well, no, that uh, ah, we'll come back to that because that's <laughs> what I am now. <laughs> so not only did I get this amazing training, I got to play in a bunch of orchestras, kind of makey-uppy, plinky-plonky type things. Um, I then had an entire career separate from being an angry rock musician. Um, I was teaching. I was going into initially kind of hospitals and schools and special schools, uh, encouraging people to make music. How brilliant is that? Yes. And uh, there's, quite, there's quite a few musicians I spoke to. Who's, oh, who, it, who, it, it was a weird time. It was kind of awful, but it was also brilliant. I'm also going to say, and this is kind of weird, because I was an, an unemployed musician who was then trained to run music sessions, uh, when we, so Globo kind of stopped, it became, yeah, it almost felt a bit weird to keep going. Was after but, pro-war, the, after the album pro-war? I think we did a couple more albums after that. Oh, we'll come back to pro-war as well. Um, but we did a couple of albums after that, but suddenly we kind of ground to a halt. But oh my God, we've got this um, whole studio full of computers at that point. Oh my God, what are we going to do with all that stuff? Um, suddenly, bang, I became a designer. Uh, because Paul, who was a punk rocker and made me join his punk rock band, said, let's be designers. My God, were you influenced by Barney Bubbles? Um, <laughs> I was, actually. Uh, but no, the big this is the big deal. So um, we, me and Paul became a design company. Uh, this was in like 1992, probably. Um, and it was at that weird period where you could say, okay, I'm a design company, and suddenly you were. Right, blimey, you just, it's like going on one of those Tony Robbins kind of... No, yeah, yeah. you just said... actualization I, moments. Yeah, it was, it was kind of weird. I said to, because I'm the sensible one, I think, of the two of us, I said, okay, we'll take a year, because we could, we'll take a year out, we'll figure out what it means to be a designer. And the very next day after I'd said that, um, we got our first proper job. Oh my God. So suddenly we're, we're proper designers. Wow, that's amazing. But because, here's the really weird thing. Because I was a community musician, happy talking to groups of people about making music, bang, I'm suddenly a designer, happy talking to groups of people, uh, which include kind of council design departments, kind of companies. I'm talking to them, I'm teaching sessions in digital imaging, in kind of design. Uh, so obviously at the time I become a web designer because you've got all this technology in your recording studio that you're not using to record anymore. Suddenly, of course, you're a filmmaker. Why would you not be? This yes. stuff can do film as well as it can do albums. <laughs> yes, I know. So it is. A very strange career path, that's for sure. So when, um, when people ask me what I do, um, it's kind of complex. Uh, if 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 you're this person, I'm actually an illustrator. My job is to draw pictures now, um, and I'm extraordinarily good at that. If you're somebody else, my job is uh, I'm a free jazz guitarist, and I'll do performances at your exhibition launch. Excellent. This is good. So with with that, was the band had the band sort of just gone to, onto the you know back burner, so to speak? I, I think we we were always kind of making stuff. It felt at the time that we kind of lost our way slightly, uh, but now I'm 
look, listening back and looking back at old videos, I've got this list of kind of 14 or 15 projects that we did and I'm listening to the stuff and it's really good. But, you know, I'm not, I'm not blowing smoke up me or anything. Um, I'm listening to it and I'm thinking, God, that was good. And it doesn't matter to me that nobody really heard it. Mm. We just got a bit bored and then we moved on to the next thing. And yes. then we get bored of that and move on to the next thing. So does that mean that the four people of, of, of the band are still vaguely part uh, of We them? kind of slimmed down to just three people. So now there's me, there's yeah. Paul, um, who, who were Eva Valve, and then there's Mark Wernham, um, who was Herman Hood. Uh, we, we've all had kind of loads of separate careers since Mark. Um, no, I won't tell you about Mark. He can tell you himself, but he's, he's a... <laughs> He's a big publisher now. Uh, right. He also used to work for the NME. He, he was um, uh, he was the dance journalist at the NME. He did all that kind of stuff. My God, uh, going back to the name of the podcast, obviously. Yes, um, absolutely. So yeah, we still work together. We still are Globo. Um, we've just well a few months ago heard again talking about that clock going round. Yeah, War, the first album is about to be re-released. Um, on double vinyl gatefold with die cut sleeve, really fancy uh, marketing strategy behind it all. Totally ruined by uh, Brexit. Uh, I don't know if you know if you're printing, if you're trying to press vinyl. Yes, it's all gone. It's all gone. Yes, I know. Because a few there's a few independent labels that I'm sort of in touch with and they've just gone yeah everything's just kind of been put back another six months and another six yeah, months. So, uh, this this re-release of pro war was supposed to happen in September so in, in like a week or so yes now it's kind of gone back I think to next year maybe literally just because we have no access to the physical gooey vinyl stuff uh, but no I'm super excited about that so who's no. putting that out um, so that was the period we were signed to Hydrogen Jukebox, the record label. They did some amazing work. Uh, if, if you're listening, it's well worth going uh, to their website and looking at their back catalogue. Uh, that's Hydrogen Duke, which is D-U-K-E, box. Took me ages to figure that out. It's probably clever, but... Yes. Hydrogen Jukebox. Um, he... Uh, Again, I think the same thing in the same way that I'm looking back at my back catalogue and that's kind of album, uh, sorry, bands I was in. I think Doug, the, the owner of Hydrogen Jukebox, is looking at his back catalogue and thinking, yeah, it's good. I should put it out again. There's the, maybe there'll be interest. Or sell it to Cherry Red Records. Um, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I don't know. If, I don't know. I think it was a guy from, I don't know, a label that I spoke to. And I think he just got an offer and he said, he said, yeah, you can just have it. You know, there you go. Just that's my pension plan. Yeah, so right. yeah. we're old. We need pension. We need yeah, help. It's like, yes, I do. And he just want to look after it. And Cherry Red Records are good. So, yeah. So that's all going to be coming out by that label. Yeah, 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 yeah. And we're super excited by that. Um, we probably won't tour it <laughs> that's all i'm saying but there is going to be a, apparently there's going to be a, a whole bunch of kind of interviews a whole bunch of stuff going on around that um, pro war yes um and, and i i think the title might have changed i'm not actually sure i've seen the artwork for it and it looks really pretty um so it's going to be different to this one which is the, what came out in 1995 
I yes, yeah, so Doug, I think, has done um a lot of work on the audio of it. That's kind of tweaking the quality, tweaking the um I must admit I haven't compared it to the original one and I probably haven't listened to the original one since 1996. Yes. Uh, so what gave you the kind of excitement to do this is 2008 you did this this nation's saving grace. What was the sort of okay. idea for that one? Well, uh actually that came about so Globo was kind of working on a bunch of stuff. And then we got, sorry, that was my email coming through. Yes. I was working on a bunch of stuff. Um, and then we'd get bored and move on to another bunch of stuff. On Hydrogen Jukebox, so we were still kind of signed to them passively. We weren't releasing anything, but, you know, once you've signed a contract, you're still friends with those people. So at least you talk to them. Yeah. Doug, Hydrogen Jukebox guy, said, oh, look, I'm releasing these um, uh, little album, little compilations of cover versions um, so mark the other guy in globo uh, is a huge devo fan so when doug was doing a bunch of covers of devo songs um he said yeah we'll do um the day my baby gave me a surprise we did a cover of that and it was released on this kind of single brilliant it was the first time we'd ever done a cover since the uh venue campaign days when we did the Slade songs at, at that school. So first cover we'd ever done. Um, and it was just great fun. Um, and, and actually, uh, Mark knows Mark Mothersbaugh, the Devo guy. Um, so uh, we had kind of long talks with them and we actually did an exhibition of his work because he makes loads of artwork, Mark right. Mothersbaugh. Um, so came to the Norwich Art Centre, we kind of had all his artwork on the walls, Globo did a little kind of 20-minute show, a few covers, a few original things, it was brilliant. But suddenly, ah, oh, we became known as kind of a covers band, and people were asking us to do kind of covers of their stuff, which was not what we expected or wanted particularly. No. Uh, but suddenly for no reason at all, Paul... Um, said, well, why don't we do a cover of, not a song, but an entire album? And if we were going to do a cover of an entire album, this is the album I'd like to do. Now, this is going to sound awful, but I've never listened to The Fall. I'm not interested in them. Uh, but he is, and I'm easily suggestible. <laughs> um, Excellent, yes. So suddenly we, yeah, we spent mm, probably nine months working with a whole bunch of people, um, kind of local musicians, vocalists. Um, it was brilliant. We we covered the entire album, This Nation's Saving Grace. Um, it was released on, uh, that was Co-Muse, a little local record label, I think. Um, the album's brilliant. We performed it once at the Norwich Arts Centre. So it was a live show. It was amazing. Uh, this is really interesting because it was filmed. A whole documentary was made about the process of recording that album. Uh, so I, I, I need to digitise all that and then I'll put that up on my blog and stuff and you can see it all for free. Blimey, that's fantastic. So how did you come across, or not come across, but why, why did, did you pick certain people to be part of that album? Did, were they people that just you just thought would suit those songs like Spoil? No, nope. as far as I remember, um, they're all people that we knew and most of them, I'm going to say all of them, 
had been through the same community music training. Right. So we'd, know, we'd known them for, for a very long time. Um, they also happened to be incredibly talented local musicians who committed for no money at all uh, to, to record, to come in and perform, to be available to be part of the filming of this documentary that was following us around. Uh, it was really generous of them. And I think, well, I definitely hope everybody had a brilliant time doing it. Yes, absolutely. And did you, and did you, grow, to, do, did you grow to enjoy the work of Margie Smith at the end of that? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of, one of the cool things about it is our album uh, was, is not the Fall album, obviously. It's completely different. Um, it's got a kind of dance feel. Um, I, at that point, am starting to bring in loads of my Derek Bailey influence, so kind of free jazz. I'm playing this broken guitar, acoustic guitar. It sounds brilliant. Um, the lovely thing about that as a project, we finished it off. So we did this performance. We have the kind of documentary of it. Uh, we were invited to take it to Salford University, which is obviously where Marky Smith is from, Salford. Um, they were doing a day, no, two-day conference on the lyrics and the value of the lyrics of Marky Smith. So we went and did this kind of presentation of our project. Um, and it was fantastic. Uh, his mum and sister were there in the audience. And so we got to meet Marky Smith's mum. Blimey, that's worth a selfie. Yeah, know. we went to the pub with them afterwards. Nobody got hit. It was lovely. <laughs> <laughs> my god that's a fantastic project so how did you then sort of think what do we do next after this or did you just all go back to your day jobs uh well we're constantly doing our day jobs we're constantly trying to kind of do stuff uh, so holding that thought this is my probably my last anecdote uh, so at this point i'm kind of 50 i'm a 50 year old man yes uh, you're gonna who, buy lycra aren't you no you're not going to lycra no, 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 no. I'm a 50-year-old man who uh, suddenly decided, well, my kids have grown up. Um, I own my house. I don't really need to work. Um, my wife said, why don't you go back to school? Because I'd never really had a proper education. Um, so as a 50-year-old man, um, I decided to go to university. Um, brilliant. Uh, because I have been a designer and I've done kind of loads of stuff, um, I went to the Norwich University of the Arts. I did the illustration course. Uh, because I'm me, um, I got all the funding available. I mean, I really am lucky. <laughs> um, yeah, it might not be good for young people to go to university, but for old people, wow, it's good. Excellent. Because it was good for me, um, I persuaded all my friends to do the same thing. So there was loads of 50-year-old blokes. God, you could get a stu student discount at Topshop. That's oh, you get so much. As an older Pizza person, there were a whole bunch of bursaries available. They just gave me 3,000 quid for no reason at all. Nice. Just because I was old. Oh, I'll take that, I say. Yeah, play the, um, play the pity card. That's good. Well, I'm, I'm, I was hobbling at that point. Give me the yeah, money. Right. Hobbling. <laughs> Uh, so I did three years of just being an illustration student at Newer, uh, and I enjoyed it so much. I learned loads of great stuff. I made loads of work. And I enjoyed it so much, I went on to do an MA in communication design. 
um, which could have been a bit weird. Um, communication design is often seen as typography. Right. Uh, not a typographer. I find that stuff horrendous. I mean, it's brilliant that people do it, but it's not my interest. Brilliantly, the kind of main guy on that course, um, I, I, the very first project we did, I kind of did some drawing. And I took in a soundtrack that I'd made for the drawing. And I played it and he said, yeah, yeah, the drawing's fine. But this music is magnificent. You <laughs> whole year making an album. I'll buy that album, he said. So suddenly my whole, the whole MA was taken up with looking at my musical practice. So what, uh, so this isn't, this is your solo work now? Yes. So the, here, here's the thing. Suddenly um, I'm still in Globo and we're still kind of doing little projects that kind of either we're happy with or we're not. We're, we're constantly developing stuff. Um, but at the end of the MA, I'd set myself this little random task to produce uh, two books, that's kind of drawn or written books, and three albums every year. I thought, I need this kind of prompt. If I don't make three albums and two books a year, I'll be disappointed. Because mm. uh, I didn't know how quickly I bloody worked. Sorry, I'm, I swore. Cut that bit out. <laughs> that's all right. <laughs> I didn't realise how quickly I produce work. Um, normally when I'm working in a group or an orchestra, my role is to interpret somebody else's kind of story or narrative. God almighty, if I work on my own, well, since I finished the MA, I finished that in 2018. So in the two and a half years since then, um, I've produced 96 albums. Nice, my God. Oh, yeah. That's averaging one and a half albums a week. Oh. Each album is at least 10 tracks or half an hour's music. Yeah. Um, it, well, just on that point, because I did an interview with, I think he was a member of the band Half Japanese a couple of months ago, and I think he's doing an album a day. I think for Yeah, the yeah, it's totally doable. And, um, and, and artwork as well. He's just throwing yeah. the whole lot at, at Yeah, no, I do all the artwork, all the typography. He does I film, uh, going back to what we were saying, um, I also, if you go to my blog... Uh, hi, my name's Steve Appleton. Uh, if you go to my blog, um, you can see the film of me making every track of those solo albums. There's a lot of... Uh, this is on Bandcamp, isn't it? Uh, yeah, the solo albums are on Bandcamp. Um, you can listen to them there. They're fantastic. So, I mean, some of the stuff is genuinely heartbreakingly good. Uh, I, my point is, following the MA, I've always liked what I've done. But following the MA, I genuinely feel um, I've become the musician that I should be. I love the work that I'm producing. Uh, and, and I love the fact that I'm producing work that I love, if that makes sense. Yeah, we well, all know. I'm not making world. music now to sell a tractor or a football T-shirt. No, definitely. There's, I, there's... I'm, I'm making stuff that I love. And I love the fact um, I was contacted by the British Library. So all those solo albums, um, they asked me if they could have them. Uh, so they're all held in the British Library, the National Sound Archive. Uh, if you go to the catalogue of the National Sound Archive and type in Steve Appleton, um, I've got the most entries of anyone ever. I think there are 980 uh, now. Because every, every track counts as an item. Right. From the catalogue. I've done 96 albums and some of my previous stuff as well. 
I'm uh, each. I'm amazed you just didn't do another four just to get to the hundred. Actually. Well, no, they're coming. I'm half. Um, no, I'm six tracks into the next one. So, okay. you know. <laughs> and I had to work this morning, so I haven't produced a track this morning at all. It's oh, a night. I know you've got till midnight anyway, but yeah. yeah. So that, so then, I mean, obviously that's that must be much more fun than anything you've ever done in your life, really, because it's your your bit, isn't it, and your baby, and you don't have it's, to have a conversation. It, well, yeah, it's so. really interesting. I felt that I was a really, really good team player. So I've never written a song. I've never, you know, I've never generated a concept. I talk to people that do write songs and concepts and I try and help them with it, whether that's in an orchestral setting or, you know. As an illustrator, generally speaking, people would give you a, a text and you draw pictures for that text. Suddenly the fact that I'm doing the things that I love, genuinely I love drawing pictures, but I'm only drawing them for me now. Oh, yeah, and I, I've published... Um, I don't know, about 50 books. It's brilliant. Yes, absolutely. Were you kind of influenced? Who was the guy who did um, Hunter S. Thompson's kind of illustration? Oh, God, Ralph Steadman. Were you influenced by Ralph? Oh, I so was. So um, luckily, uh, and this is a big deal for me, actually, I really am. I think Ralph Steadman's brilliant. I think his line work and his colour work is insane. What about Robert Crumb? Um, Crumb is problematic. I love his... Uh, I love lots of his work. I, I'm not so keen on his worldview. Um, and some of his work is absolutely dreadful. Um, but one thing I do love about him is the fact that he produces loads of work. He does. I definitely suck that in. The thing I love about Ralph Steadman, two things actually. Um, again, when I was at primary school, um, if we're talking visual arts, for some reason, um, we were taken to a Ralph Steadman exhibition. No, it must have. It was just after he'd done the Pink Floyd stuff, so that was like seventy-seven, wasn't it? Right. So yes. It was second year of the grammar school, um, so we went on a trip wherever it was to London. That was a big deal, um, and yeah, it was a Ralph Steadman exhibition, and I could not believe it. It was like proper grown-up and frightening. Yeah. I was drawing Mickey Mouse. You know, that, that was the kind of drawings I was doing at the time. Uh, very good Mickey Mice, but <laughs> Mickey Mouse, as it were. Yes. Uh, suddenly the idea that you could kind of just draw and, whoa, literally the mark-making is frightening. Yeah. Yeah he, yeah, he was a big influence on me visually, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So then, when did you decide to do another album? This is, this is London 1966. When did that sort of idea... That was um, that was a good, I think, four or five years after Pro War. Um, so we'd that was I can't even remember what the record label was. It North South, the record label. Oh, Burning Shed. Oh yeah, yeah. So, so we signed to several labels. That's for sure. <laughs> South. That's right. They had the rights to put the album out. But the single we did, the very first thing we did for them, sold so badly. I think they sold like two copies, genuinely two copies of the single. They said, well, no, you can have the album back. We'll just... Yes. Uh, so, yeah, Burning Shed is the local, isn't it? They're Norwich-based, um, really nice people. Um, they said, yeah, put it out. We'll put it out. We'll put it out. Um, and they did, and it's great. And uh, you can 
you can get electronic versions, but I think they still have some kind of CD copies, that real. Uh, again, that was essentially just Globo working when we weren't working on anything. Right. So when Globo was working on something, there was a whole bunch of projects. One was called um, Glisten, which was amazing. Um, a woman called Kazumi Kato, Japanese singer. Um, we were essentially her backing band. And I loved that. I actually listened to it this afternoon. Um, that was when we were doing stuff. Uh, Paul and Mark tried to become a girl band. Um, so we had three, yeah. We had three. At its height. It, absolutely. Um, we had three kind of session uh, musicians coming in and they were brilliant and we recorded a whole bunch of stuff with them did um, some uh, kind of touring with them but it didn't lead anywhere so in the days we weren't working on those kind of projects that's when that second album came out in an afternoon you'd kind of throw something in and then a couple of weeks later you'd throw the next kind of layer on that song it was a real kind of slow burn project was that the last time you'd recorded an album together? You know, I yes, I I think it is. No, actually, the um, the Comus one, the uh, fall cover, I think was after that one. Uh, I could be wrong. I'd have to look at my timeline. I actually. think it's actually it seems to all be happening for you in two thousand and eight. Yeah, now that that would make sense. And is that the kind of last time, apart from various other little? Yeah, important? yeah. I mean. It's, Essentially, at that point, um, things start... I mean, it was all interesting to that point, but then things start to get interesting. So Mark um, becomes an author. Um, so rather than a bass player and a synth programmer, uh, suddenly Mark Wernham is an author, and he's got, like, proper representation, and he puts a couple of novels out, uh, and that's brilliant. Um, and Paul becomes a filmmaker. And I become this kind of illustrator, uh, and, and it gets slightly complex, obviously, yes. um, because we also put out as a collective, the three of us and the guy that used to manage Globo, a guy called Push Crystals. I don't know if you know him. Um, he was he was the editor of the NME. Um, yeah, the no. name's familiar, but um, yeah. yes. the editor of the dance section of the enemy. He also put out a couple of magazines. Um, certainly, the famous one was called Mondo, and that was famous because Paul and I were featured artists, like visual artists, in this kind of lads mag. Right. And we were commissioned every month to produce a bit of art. Nice. Brilliant. Endless fun. Uh, so suddenly, they—that's Push and Mark become all really interested in writing and publishing. So kind of making music kind of falls down a bit for them because, oh my God, suddenly now they, um, they're the publishers of uh, Electronic, Electronic Sound, the magazine. Oh, the magazine, right, it all makes that sense. That is Mark, the bass player in uh, Basti and the programmer in Globo. He's now the owner of Electronic Sound. So oh, well, that all makes vague sense, because vaguely... I love thought. it when it comes together. Because <laughs> this guy who was a, an American dude, um, he, was, he came to the UEA, he, he's got a picture of that guy that you just push in, in this one. Uh, I, think, I think that's kind of him. I'm not I, sure. I 
could well be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so he said that he was, at, he was at the UEA at the same time, that um, he was, at the, yeah, from America. But then he collected all this stuff and he's put it in a book which came out last year. And he mentions that chap as going on to do the magazine. Right, yeah, yeah. So, so they they had, like, they at that point, they were living in London. You were proper journalists and authors. Mark was flying all around the world and doing interviews with people. Um, they were having a great time. I was a consultant for Norfolk and Suffolk County Councils going around and helping uh, people develop their IT skills and their marketing and branding. Uh, um, God, that's very handy. No, and again, shoom, suddenly it all comes back together. Uh, so um, Mark, obviously publisher, working in uh, the, the kind of music industry, um, Paul, proper, proper filmmaker now, uh, me uh, doing all my kind of books and all my kind of content creation. Uh, suddenly, yeah, we've, and, and also Mark lives, I can literally see his house if I look at the window. And Paul right. lives couple of roads up that way so we're all still really close I was working with Paul this morning in fact on a kind of teaching thing uh, we're all really close we're still really interested in making work but again as kind of older people it's about oh uh, maybe Friday maybe Friday <laughs> we'll get together and do some stuff it's that kind of scheduling yes um, well actually I did an interview with a member of It's Immaterial and him and his co-worker they they'd had friday together as friday fun days so that's what right, they would yeah, do yeah. every friday they would just get together and do whatever which might not be much but they they would hang out together on a friday and and uh yes that's and that's, again i think it's crucial one of the things i was talking about this morning um so this morning i did this teaching mentoring thing and we talked a lot about the the the, the crucial nature of having people so now I'm at this point where kind of creatively, I'm loving producing my own music. I'm loving producing my own books and point paintings and drawings. But even so, I need to bounce those off other people. Yes. Just because I'm loving it doesn't mean to say I should, you know, put it out or something. Um, so my friends and compatriots roles is to kind of rein me in a little bit now, which is weird. Because uh, in the past, my role was to kind of just help them get stuff out. Now their role is to kind of maybe help me not throw everything out straight away. Right. Uh, it, it's funny. Yeah, your you kind of roles shump around a bit. Yes. Well, that's, that's um, yes, it's, it's kind of fast. I didn't realise there was such a sort of afterlife or, or even... Yes, after you know, your musical bands, actually. It was, um... but, it, but it also totally makes sense. <clears throat> if you were part of, um, like I say, the kind of 1980s rock world, either you're going to become, and I'm, I don't mean this in a pejorative sense, when you drop out of that, maybe you become an insurance salesman and you never do anything other than insurance salesman ever again. Uh, but if you do... I think what we did was developed a creative kind of process. And then the real question is, what do you do with that? What, what's the form that it takes? Uh, it could be books this year. It could be films the year after. It could be web stuff the year after that. It could be theatre or dance the year after that. Um, but once you've made contacts with people that put on gigs, 
those people then put on shows those people that does that make sense yes well absolutely <clears throat> yes because it, it's interesting <laughs> having done so many of these interviews what people go on to and it's almost like there, there's part a few members of bands were also looking at the exit quite soon they were thinking yeah this isn't going to make any money so i need to sort of work out do i sort of go towards engineering do i go towards you know sound work do i go towards production you know they were sort of looking at other ways of what happens when the band finishes because as you realize most people finish because of a dynamic but also a complete lack of money happening in their lives yeah, yeah. Well, we need health care you, your hip is going to go and you yes need... so it's um yeah it, it's kind of one of those classic ones so uh, so what's your plan then for the next period because obviously it sounds like you're still very much got all these ideas and and the sort of collective band members have also got all these ideas i mean oh god yeah have you got some sort of idea of what's going to happen in the next couple of years well definitely me um this is so weird <laughs> i am on fire i'm producing so much material it's such a shame that covid happened for many reasons um, obviously, my heart goes out to anyone that was kind of badly affected by it. Um, uh, just to let you know, and, and everyone else who's listening, um, I did have COVID at the very start in March 2020. Um, I had it. Mm -hmm. So that's like 18, 19 months ago. Um, and I haven't been able to sing since. But for 19 months, my so I've got... Uh, I think nine, ten albums where I'm literally a singer-songwriter. I'm, I'm writing songs and they're heartbreakingly beautiful. And I've got this lovely voice. And then, bang, I catch COVID and my voice just... Dis you can probably hear it's going now, actually. Um, Bloody hell. I literally cannot sing. Um, so that, that's fine because, you know, people have died or they've been really seriously uh, hurt. My lungs are fine. I've got no scarring. My kidneys are working fine. Um, but my sinuses and my throat uh, for, for 19 months have been atrocious. Mm. Actually, for the last couple of weeks, it's not been too bad. So, I'm, I'm, so I did, I was speaking a lot this morning and I'm speaking a lot now and I'm surprised that it's held up this long, actually. Mm, bloody hell, I didn't yep. realise it. It affected the vocal so much. Oh, God. Well, long COVID is, um, yeah, it's very complex and we don't know what it does. Um, certainly, I've had, they talk about brain fog. Um, yeah. So um, I, I take lots of roles in our collective. I am an accountant. Was that I'm with really... the AAT? Did you get your... <laughs> yeah, well, I'm really interested in spreadsheets. I'm, I'm good with money and managing that Excel, stuff. Excel spreadsheets. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I am aware that my brain isn't as sharp as it was before 2020. Oh. And that's the brain fog thing. I'm really aware that my voice just isn't what it was. And actually I'm selling, uh, because I'm like this, um, if I can never sing again, I'm selling a collection of my singer-songwriter albums. You can buy them all in one blob, which I think is quite funny. Mm -hmm. uh, it's only this past couple of weeks where I've been thinking, oh, maybe I should, maybe I could try singing again. Uh, but no, sorry, the reason I'm talking about the COVID thing, pre-COVID, uh, two things happened, and I will shut up fairly soon because I'm aware. No, no, it's get... fine, it's fine, it's fine. Uh, but two things happened. Firstly, I went to my first ever um, book fair. 
if you know me, which I feel you know me a bit, yes. now, um, you can see that I would despise the idea of sitting behind a table with a bunch of people coming up and just, mm. I loved it. I'm such an idiot. All these years I thought I wouldn't like this thing. Um, so my wife's from Newcastle and there's a brilliant book fair. I was invited to it because I was, um, they knew my work from the MA stuff that I published actually. Um, it was a self-publishing fair. Um, I got to the Baltic. I don't know if you know the Baltic Gallery in Newcastle. It's brilliant. Mm -hmm. And they literally came out to the car park and kind of helped me carry my books up. And they brought me the free coffee and here's the biscuits, Steve. <laughs> That's amazing. Here's your table. And it was all laid out. And I laid my books out. And you, it's brilliant. I did not realise how exciting it was talking to other people about your books and why you made them, and then taking their money and giving them the book. Oh, my God, this is it. Yeah, I so loved it. Uh, the other thing, um, I've been just before uh, lockdown, um, I started to, to have this thing. Um, so I, I, I used to love performing as part of a group, uh, but I'm actually quite kind of shy. Um, I think that's why I took the roles in the bands that I did. Um, oh my God, a solo performer, <gasps> I love it. Uh, and when I'm performing, uh, what I've been doing is um, working at exhibition launches and so very kind of free jazz, moving around the venue, making work responding to the audience and the, 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 the art that's there. <gasps> I love it so much. Uh, so if COVID hadn't have happened, I think I would have been by now much more out in the world. Yeah. Because COVID's happened, I've been sitting in my various studios around Norwich, kind of literally gazing at my navel as I'm kind of playing all this work. Um, for me, the, uh, the next few years, I'm super happy if it just continues. If I just make work, I'll be happy. I would be incredibly happy if COVID just kind of let us make work and be kind of face-to-face -face making it. Yes. That would make me super happy. Um, what I would really like uh, is for Globo uh, to become more of a producer again, uh, because the work that the three of us individually seem to be working on, uh, it seems like a real kind of simpatico we should be able to work together. Paul, Paul should be making films for us. And I should be producing kind of soundtracks for those. Yes. And Mark should be writing words for us. And we should collectively be packaging those things up into shows, into boxes of material, into albums when we can get vinyl again. But, so, yeah, more. That, that's all I want. Just got, more. Yes, well, God, it's a shame that COVID happened. And Brexit. But never mind. Yeah, this is tricky, isn't it? But it does sound like the three of you have had the, probably the longest relationship that anybody's ever had in the creative industries. Yes, I, I think we've been, well, firstly, we've been incredibly lucky. Um, and secondly, I think they are both really good. Like, unquestionably, they're really good. Um, and I'll flip it back. I'm doing my hands now. 
Yes. I think I'm really good as well. And I think it doesn't bother Paul that Mark is really good. You know, that kind of ego thing doesn't happen. Mark isn't worried that I'm really good. Um, and also, uh, we're quite, and I mean this in a good way, quite childish. We do have loads of arguments. Um, they particularly argue uh, quite a lot creatively. Um, don't do this. Yes, I will do this. Don't do this. Yes, I will do this. <laughs> um, I think that's a really positive thing. So long as you know the other person's just genuinely good, yeah, why not argue? It brings a bit of spice to it. So when you look at the work that you did with both bands, which which is the particular sort of moment or track that you think, when you look listen back to it, you think, yeah, that was absolutely, we were really on fire, either Bastille or Globo. I think this is true of all bands. I think you hit at this kind of sweet spot where you lose your influences and where you're not tired or chasing something else. Uh, for me, Basti was absolutely at its finest when we were Basti. Uh, there was a grim point, and luckily it was never recorded, uh, where because we were in Manchester, um, we were wearing kind of baggy shorts and we had kind of those short shirts with hoodies on. Beautiful. Yeah, but it wasn't us. It was us pretending we were a bit Mancunian. Uh, and I think with Globo, there was a there was a there was a period where we were just Globo. We weren't trying to be an electronic band. Um, we did loads of touring with Jack Dangers, Meet the Manifesto, um, yes. but we weren't trying to be him. We actually did loads of work with him as well, but we weren't trying to be him. Uh, and we hadn't got tired of being kind of dance creatives. I think the real problem is when you're not quite yourself, so you're more trying to find out who you are, or when you've become tired of yourself. And I think that's true of every band. There's this sweet spot when they're just who they are. Um, that's all I'll say. Yes. Well, it's interesting because I think, um, I don't know, there's a few artists I can remember from the, who were sort of, from one decade, you know, would say quite big, influential. And the next decade they go into... I'm thinking of quite a few people from the 70s. Their 80s work is like, oh, that's not good, is it? You know, that's yeah, really, yeah. you know, and they were trying to get the sort of the producer of the time. They were trying to oh, almost listen to some other band and go, shall we have some of that? And it's like, no. Yeah, you're, you're chasing this. Yes, it was, we, were, we were never going to be a good Mancunian band. We were always going to be a bad copy of the Stone Roses or whoever. Uh, and And... That's the last thing you want to be, Jesus. No, yeah, because it's too obvious. It's just like, you know, some of those bands, though, especially the Britpop bands, you had a few and you thought, oh, this is quite good. And then the next wave comes in, you think, oh, this is where you kind of leave the party, isn't it? You think, yeah, that's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of... And the same with punk, you know, as well. And, you know, so... And that, that's, it's only human. I don't hold that against anyone or myself when I do it. No, but, no. Yeah, looking back, you kind of think, oh... If only I could have broken my guitar at that point and played with the broken neck so I wouldn't sound like a copy or a bad copy of Tony Iommi or whatever. <laughs> Good old Tony. 
mentioned in a half half man half biscuit track isn't he Tony so we look if you could have said something to your 16 year old self starting out in that kind of world back in Kings Lynn before you got to Yarmouth I mean if there was something you could have whispered in their ear or two things what would it be what sort of worldly advice would you have given them even if they would have ignored you and said yeah whatever granddad they would totally have ignored me well firstly I am a granddad I'm so pleased you called me granddad (laughs) Best thing I've ever done. Um, he would have ignored me, the 16-year-old. Um, I would have said, firstly, work harder. Um, my memory of myself as a kid uh, is that I was incredibly lazy. Um, like, I really enjoyed everything. And I was pretty clever, so I didn't have to work. I think I mentioned when I did A-levels, I rather m- most people do three A-levels. Um, I did two, and the two I chose to do was art and archaeology. The two easiest subjects literally in the world. And archaeology I was slightly disappointed in because I thought uh, 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 Raiders of the Lost Ark had just came out. So I imagined archaeology was going to be like that. Yes. and um... It It was doing some field walking until the All Saints for two years. But, you know. You got an A. Do you get an A? Uh, no, I got two grade E's. <coughs> you were lazy. Gee, that was lazy. Yeah, no, I know. So the e. idea that suddenly I became like going to university and I've, I've got my first and I got a, my kind of master's. I'm actually quite pleased about that in a kind of facetious way. But no, I think the big deal is I would say to my younger self, just work harder, mate. You can do amazing stuff if you just do it. And secondly... Don't wait. I think that's the other thing that young people uh, can really fall into the trap of, waiting to become a brilliant guitarist before they tell people they're guitarists. Just do it. You, you yes. don't have to write your magnum opus before you pretend you're an author. No. Hey, you're an author. Write some stuff. What the hell? Yes. Well, I suppose it's the um, imposter syndrome, isn't it, sometimes? People can get quite insecure about can I call myself this or can I just say yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. Again, I've, I've got literally no time for that. Just get on with it. Yeah. I, I, I totally kind of empathise um, if you're feeling you don't deserve it, but you're wrong. You do. If you want to be an author, you be an author. Get in with the creative. I mean, speaking to a few people, you know, from, you know, like talking about their kind of world, um, because they would often say, I wish we were nicer to other bands. We were sort of a bit competitive. <laughs> and sometimes I would just wish we'd been a bit friendlier. And looking back, they feel a bit embarrassed, thinking, God, they must have thought we were such. Did you ever, did you sort of have a good attitude to this, you know, musical world? Or were you also a little bit like, oh, no, you know, we mustn't touch uh, Can I be bold? I'm going to be brutally honest with you. Um, Basti was essentially awful. Um, we we did not like, and we were not liked by anyone locally. Um, and I think we as a collective reveled in that. Um, that was a real creative thing for us. I, I think if we were too friendly with, you know, kind of local people, maybe this was just us. Maybe we weren't taking it seriously enough. Uh, and again, that's being young and angry. You have to be a little bit angry at something. Mm. 
Um, I think the flip side of that, that at that point, um, I was still incredibly shy and I didn't like speaking to people. Um, so not only was I kind of a little bit, oh no, we shouldn't be friends with people because that, that's not what we should be doing. But also I, I was probably too nervous to make friends with people. Yes, um, I know that's kind of quite common as well, yeah. And totally, it totally makes sense that there's a level of narcissism in wanting to be a rock guitarist, but there's also a level of insecurity in needing to be a rock guitarist. I'm totally aware of that. Um, <laughs> yes. and, yeah, and, and, and yeah, that I think literally goes back to telling your 16-year-old self just to get over it, get on with it, make what? work and be yeah. nice, be friends with people. Because yeah. the first time, while we were being horrible as bestie, we were community musicians working in hospitals and prisons, encouraging people to kind of uh, make music and make connections. And we were very kind of left-wing and we yeah, helped the venue campaign, get the waterfront running. We were very engaged, uh, just not with other musicians, which is quite funny. Yes, a bit like flash dance, but without the welding. But um, what did your <laughs> we like a bit of welding? But what happened? Yeah. What What did your parents and dad and brother think of your musical and life journey? I I think they had no opinion on it. Uh, there was a lovely um, family barbecue uh, when one of my cousins came up and said, "How's the shop going?" And I said, "What? What? What?" You know, he said, this shop you've got where you sell computers. My mum had just lied. She said that I, I owned a shop that sold computers because she couldn't understand what it was that I did to make money. Right. Uh, which I think is brilliant. That's good. She Mom's took my good. advice as a 16-year-old. She didn't know what I was doing, so she just got on with it and made up something that her son was doing. Yeah. I think my dad was not interested because I wasn't playing country and western he was a real that was the thing that he listened to uh, brilliantly there was a period because I'm very accepting of stuff there was a period where I played lots of country and western um, but he wasn't interested in that by that point anyway so yeah does he know the story of you being taken to great um not great yama chroma and seeing but uh, yeah, uh, no um, unfortunately he passed away um well in the the last half of my ma um uh, i became his kind of carer so mm -hmm. i was doing this kind of stuff while i was looking after dad as he was in that process of dying and brilliantly at the very end of the MA, when I was doing all my kind of thesis and blah, blah, putting on the final shows, working on the final project, I was actually selling his house and going through all his stuff and chucking it out. Uh, that was a pretty grim period. Jesus, uh, that is grim. Who said there was an amazing book I've got, which is, um, I must just see, he must have got it actually. Um, Jesus, I can't believe I found it so quickly. Um, He's a book. No, have you got that one? Do you know I have not? But oh, I do. One? Yeah, I do know about it, so I know what it is. Oh, it makes you cry, Jesus. Yeah, no. Well, again, uh, from from a, a, a student of communication design, 
all stuff is designed to to get a story a narrative to produce a response yes. and yeah that is a pretty grim story well it's beautiful and it's life it's just it is life it's nothing unusual but my god it does pull your heartstrings and it's you know that, i don't think that is literally what i said about my final project um i'm not saying anything Da, 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 da. that's the book I produced as part of my final project that is my father right the the, the project was called transitions moving from one state to another uh, when I was talking about me um, moving from being a kid there's a drawing of me as a baby sitting on his shoulders and then I kind of wipe out that picture and I, be, I become an old man with my granddaughter uh, so it's the, it's the same piece of paper I just keep wiping out the picture and the picture gets developing they look great uh, but i said in my actual proposal it's nothing um, unusual it's nothing dramatic it, it's a story that everybody goes through my god i think you'd love but, that book. it's my story so i'm going to put it into this bloody book and you're going to buy a copy and it'll be beautiful <laughs> raymond felt the same way he yeah it, it, it's it's dull it's a dull story that everybody hopefully kind of goes through it was also one of one of the um, best um, uh, and most precious moments of my life to be with him at that period um, where you can kind of give your father his last ice cream you're kind of sharing that moment with him mm. you can give him his last fish and chips this fish is a bit dry. Yes, it is, Dad, but it's the <laughs> last fish and chips you're ever going to have. Oh, and to be with him as he took his last breath and his kind of pulse went, it, it was an absolute privilege. Uh, really difficult, but an absolute privilege. Again, it's kind of those things that you take with you. And I'd say to my 16-year-old self, pay attention. And, yeah, make notes. and hopefully unobtrusively, take photographs and recordings and write music about. Um, because if you don't, much like Blade Runner, they're just tears in rain, all those moments go. Yes. Oh, God, I know. It's, um, life, Jesus. As Lemmy said, you just got to keep in it, haven't you? But um, yes. it is. Oh, and I've, I've saw Motorhead so many times. They were a real kind of... You know, Lemmy worked in Anglian Canners the Kings Lynn Canning Factory. I remember someone mentioning this is something to do with his white boots that he used to like to wear, that it was to do with him having yeah, yeah. boots in the factory, yes. I didn't know that story, actually. I'd, I'd sort of, I've heard a lot of people over the years, you know, who I've interviewed who, especially from London in that sort of 70s, 80s, knew Lemmy because he just was there. Yeah, everywhere. again, part of a scene, of course you kind of know every pub and um, every venue and club, you know, Lemmy sort of was about. So, um, blimey. So he was in King's Lynn, was he? Yeah, apparently. Uh, it's an apocryphal story. I choose to believe it. Yeah, well, it might, it might have happened. I have to Google it now. The, well, I know he did the Rockin' Vickers, and then he was Jimi Hendrix kind of roadie, and then he was kind of War Hawkwind. So, um, I don't know. It might have been a weekend. He didn't have much time, though, did he, between... <laughs> He didn't he have much time to get food, to King's Lynn. There is, there is a problem with that story, isn't there? He had lots of food because he worked at Anglia Canners. He, he did. Would, 
packets. He, of... he wasn't. He wasn't famous for eating, though, was he? <laughs> no, he was not a fat chap. That's for he, sure. He, he, you know, his diet was a bit sort of basic, really. So, um, and he loved he loved playing on the game machine, didn't he? It's like that's his thing. Everyone always said, "Oh, you'd go to this pub and there was Lemmy in the corner," but yeah, he, yeah, yeah. he never broke his concentration because he would really swear at you. So, um, yeah, you just went, "Oh, oh, don't say anything." You know. <laughs> he did well, though. <laughs> Oh, he did well to me, dear old Lemmy. Yeah. Anyway, look, I'll let you go. But thanks for the smart. If you want, I can always, um, when I do this, I can send you the link and then you can always put it up on your social media platform. I would sites. love that. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then people can go, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Or not. Oh, skip, skip, skip. When's he going to stop talking and let David speak? Um, I would also say um, mm -hmm. one of my pals, uh, Steve Weissman, who lives in Hollywood, um, the day after you first emailed me, um, he emailed me to say, oh, I've just heard a, a brilliant interview, uh, a, a brilliant podcast with a guy in your area. <laughs> it's, it's David, this C86 show. I was so oh. pleased. I wrote straight back. and said, oh, yeah, he's just emailed me. I might be doing <laughs> So what was, the, what was the interview that he, he listened to? I think he listened to a bunch of them. So Steve Weissman is a cartoonist. I think he's brilliant. Um, I also count him as one of my friends. We've met, we've only ever met once in real life. Um, and that was brilliant. It's, sometimes you meet people and they're a disappointment. Sometimes you meet people and you just connect with them. Um, I, I oh. thought he was a lovely bloke. But I love the fact that somebody from completely different world yeah, that was very weird. is listening to your podcast, said, tells me that he's listening to your podcast at the same time that we're starting to connect and about to do an interview. Yes, that is a bit bizarre, isn't it? Because I kind of realised in this one little room the other day, there was some, I don't know, yeah, I can't quite believe this is true, but Podbean said, oh, congratulations, you've, you've done 600. And, I, and that was quite a while ago. And I was thinking, so this one little room has had so many interviews from people around the world. It's unbelievable, really. Fantastic. You do it. You're my 16-year-old self. Work hard <laughs> and just do it. Yes, well, it's like, you know, I keep on... You know, going, oh, yes, this is very exciting. You know, it's, it is great. You know, it's like, oh, my God, that person, I must, I must, you know, he played bass. You know, I don't know. I won't go on about it, but there's been some amazing kind of moments. But this has been amazing as well. So, look, it's been lovely. And, um, look, yeah, like I said, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of, I'll send you the link and then, you know, you can see yeah. what people say. But hopefully Steve Wiseman will listen to it and go, oh, no. I'll force him to now. Yeah, I don't do anything. I know it all. That will get him, won't it? Anyway, look, I'll let you go. But thanks again for your time. This has been amazing. I hope you recover from your COVID experience. Well, yeah, I've got my fingers crossed. Like I say, in the last couple of weeks is the first time that I haven't had awful sore throats. Mm. I've got my fingers crossed. You've turned, you've turned the corner, yeah. Well, I'm an asthmatic and I'm just kind of thinking couple of weeks time although you know I don't want to wish the summer away it's like I think it will change with the pollen and stuff and it'll be like oh yes I've got I've got most of my lungs but I kind of know that there's a there's a percentage that isn't quite happening and it's like right I'll just not go too quickly here but eventually it'll no. be like oh yes I can move a bit quicker now and I'm all I'm saying is when uh, so in that the kind of couple of weeks when I was and I was never really bad you know, I've, I've spoke to people who were really bad and I haven't spoken to people obviously because they've died. Mm -hmm. um, so I know I didn't have it too bad. 
Um, but because of me, I kept a diary every day. Um, and there's, there's this one, so I was kind of, you know, worried about certain stuff. Oh, that's not very good. I won't go into my symptoms, but oh, gosh, that's not very good. Uh, but there was one thing reading back a few months after I'd kind of recovered from it. But at the time, I realised I was so frightened that I didn't process it. But there's this one little line where I say, oh, I've realised I can only breathe in for two and a half seconds. And then it stops. You went, Ugh. and then it stopped. It wasn't painful. And I was just kind of saying, oh, that's interesting. Uh, afterwards, as, as I was kind of reading it, I realised I can breathe in for nearly 18 seconds. So my lung capacity had literally and at that point you're thinking okay if it goes down to two seconds is that so small you can't get up and down the stairs anymore one and a half seconds is that when you need to quit you know you you kind of your world is getting really small so i'm not i'm not saying anything i'm saying yeah you need to be really comfortable before you even think about the possibility of getting that yeah, well, I realised, you know, having had this since the age of four, and obviously I was the only kid at school, so hurrah for that. But I, I just realised most people don't know what it's like not to be able to breathe, because you kind of think, yeah. well, you just breathe, but you go, no, breathing is like... Dad, Dad, can, I, can, can, can we quickly go to the hospital? It's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Give me my thing. Do something. Yeah, I know. When you can't, you know, when you can't breathe, you think, I, actually, this is getting really, I'm, I'm now on my knees and I'm praying to God. You know, that's kind of when things are getting a bit. So I think when people go, we, you know, it's like, mm, you don't know what it's like not to breathe. And I'm waggling my finger. Oh, no, no, no. You take this seriously. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's, it's kind of one of those. Yeah, because like this summer, you know, I did my peak flow and it was like, oh, yeah, it has just dropped a percentage. And then you think that is, you know, probably 20 percent. So I'm not that surprised. But then I know the figures where it's like that's when it kind of gets critical and you have to go. I'm going to go to the doctors today just to sort of get some steroids, I think, <laughs> because it's that kind of like the tipping point. You think, I can hold it at that percent, that, that number. Yeah, yeah. That next number down is the, you know, I need to go, really. I can't I can't do that whole my God, I can't breathe, you know, because, um, yes, Jesus, it's horrendous. But, you know, it's, it makes you appreciate that moment where you think, God, I can breathe, and my nose isn't blocked, and everything's okay, I'm, I'm all right. But it's a weird one when your body sort of starts to collapse on you, you know. <laughs> and there will end the yes i know there will end but anyway look we're, we're we're sort of we're in our 50s and we're rocking so that's the main we thing are else. doing bloody well well that's what i think in, in the circumstances you've got to keep smiling haven't you? but anyway look take care and thanks a lot and um yeah i'll keep in touch yeah and also i would say um in the future hopefully we'll bump into each other yes i know love to meet up at some point when yeah, let's let's so rock. We're both comfortable. We're comfortable. We can. Yes, I know. I'll be wearing a mask for years. Actually, I quite like the mask thing. Actually, get me started. I think it's really cute. I think they're great. You know, and you don't feel embarrassed if you see someone you don't want to talk to anymore because you just think I've got a mask. They they they're not quite sure. I'll do they? Well, they can't see the the shapes that my mouth is making. Yes. Well, they're thinking. <laughs> You know, you do that thing, I think David Bowie used to do it in New York, where, you know, he'd walk around with this kind of boring outfit and a pouring paper. And when people looked at him, 
you know, he wouldn't just, you know, it was like, no, that can't be David Bowie, can it? But it was like, yes, it was probably, you know. <laughs> so the mask is the same thing. It's the, uh, that's why I think is that if someone goes, oh, and, and you, don't, you don't respond back, they go, oh, no, I thought that was going to be David, but it's not, is it? It's brilliant. You can go around the supermarket quite quickly now. So there you go. Anyway, oh, look, I must go. <laughs> look, and thanks. Um, thanks. <clears throat> thanks again. That's been great. But um, uh, I really enjoyed it. Hopefully, it was useful. And it's I been brilliant. I'm, I'm amazed. I mean, there you go. It's it's good stuff. But look, thanks again, and uh, take care of yourself. Brilliant. Good night. Bye bye. Yeah. And that, dear listener, is showbiz, and that's also how not to end a phone call, but or, or conversation. But I love to leave them in because they're quite fumbly, and I quite like that in that self-conscious, nerdy way. But uh, a massive thank you to Steve Appleton to give me give me the time for that interview. This, though, has been The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, do C86 Show. Keep it positive and nice, otherwise don't bother. Seriously. And um, also, if you're interested, um, you might be, You, all these have been archived, these interviews, and they all go on literally for hours. But if you're, if you're remotely interested, I don't care if you are or not, really. Um, you can find them on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, and um, yes, any indie bands from the, yeah, the 80s especially. And um, a bit of a you know, obsession with David Bowie. So there's various pe- people who work with David Bowie, um, which have been, some of them are brilliant. And uh, I'm not being biased either. Anyway, look, good night. Have a great week.